Welcome to the Building Great Teams podcast. This podcast is exploring the art and science of some of the greatest teams in this country over the last 25 years. And we're going to be exploring uh, great teams with the people who built them. So over the last 25 years, the UK has fostered some truly elite sports teams from the GB cycling um, teams from 2012 to 2016. Uh, team Sky with three Tour de France wins, England Rugby World Cup winning teams, uh, the British and Irish Lions undefeated tours through to Arsenal's undefeated Invincible side of 2014 and Liverpool's Champions League and Premier League winning teams of 2019 and 20. So we wanted to talk to the people involved, the players, the coaches, and really get under the skin of those teams and try and find what was it that made them successful? Uh, when did people know in, in the group that they were going to be successful? And try to present to the public a bit more in-depth insight into how those teams came together so that they can be replicated in other domains. In this episode, we're going to be talking about selection and analysis. And we're going to be talking with Mike Hughes, one of the preeminent experts on performance analysis in sport. Mike was at the forefront of GB cycling as it rose to prominence in the early to mid 2000s. He then moved into England rugby and worked with the British and Irish Lions as head of selection and analysis on their last two tours. He is an expert in using data to make decisions both live in game and in selection processes. And in terms of themes that we're going to cover today, we're going to be looking at how data plays a role in decision making, the balance between data and intuition, and when to use data and when to ignore data. Let's jump into a specific team and start there and we can start to explore some of the themes. So you work with the British and Irish Lions. I think that's a, a very interesting environment for selection because you've got four nations whereby there's probably something in the region of over a thousand players spread across those four nations. And you've got to select a squad to go and tour another country, usually the world champions um, from the last World Cup in rugby. And you've got to select a squad of, of between 37 and I think about 45 um, players. Uh, walk me through sort of the initial process. Like, how does that happen? How do you get a call to work with the British and Irish Lions first and foremost? Um, historically, it's always been a call from the head coach. Um, and, you know, the head coach and, and the coaching team have a big influence on then the staff that tour. And you usually find that units within the coaching or performance group are, are sort of kept together from tour to tour and nation to nation, just because you have so little time to get up to speed, understand each other's working practices, understand the players, um, implement a game plan, that having people within units within the team can really sort of shortcut that. So, you know, very often the head coach will work with an analyst that he's familiar with and comfortable with and has worked with previously. You very much... Uh, try to align you know, the defence coach with an analyst that he's worked with on defence before, same with attack, same with set piece, to try and shortcut those things. Um, so it, it's usually sort of hand-picked, it's not a role that you sort of apply for per se. So it's, it's, it's very much built on, on the relationships that already pre-exist within the home nations. So the, you know, the coaching team that's selected then has a big influence on the, on the performance team that supports that. When's the first point where you discuss which players are going to be on tour and how much does it relate to the game plan and how much does it relate to, well, we've got a limited amount of time, so well, let's get units? It, 
selection happens post Six Nations, right? So it is. It's 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 such a tight window, and like I said, it doesn't need to be this pressurised, but it is. Um, so I think you know a lot more planning could be done in advance to, to relieve the pressure. Um, selection meetings start happening um, in the in the in the weeks after the um, Six Nations. Who, who's in a in a selection meeting? Um, it will be uh, head coach, uh, all the unit coaches, um, usually the uh, tour manager, uh, and then the analysts, and sometimes the head of strength and conditioning as well. Where would that typically happen? I've got in my head a giant chateau in France, uh, <laughs> lots of wine. Funnily enough, that did happen. Did, did it really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and was selection better as a result of? Oh, that? absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. red. What you know, what what doesn't red wine make better? Um, <laughs> better decisions faster. Um, so yeah, we've had it in, in many places. Sometimes in hotels, Scion Park, uh, Penny Hill Park, um, and you know, once it was in a, in a chateau uh, in Perpignan after everybody got sort of flew, flown out on a private jet which Sounds was amazing. yeah which was glorious that was glorious <laughs> had you done the selection on the plane and then it was just <laughs> yeah. let's relax from here let's sit by the pool yeah. and kick back with randomly selected 37 players let's get yeah that's here. fine we're all happy with this so let, let's do that one then because that sounds like quite a fun sort of scenario you arrive in uh, yeah. at the chateau you get transferred to the chateau there's mm. a group of what 10, 10 of you uh, yeah it must have been 10 or 12 12 of us maybe um yeah, so we got there. What's the first meeting? Um, is, is it structured or is it just like, we have a coffee, what are we doing here? First meeting was a few beers and dinner. Right. And then sort of the meeting, the formalised meeting started the next day. Um, so in terms of the, the, the formalised stuff, uh, once everybody was up and about, um, it sort of took the form of, um, you know, Going through the sort of schedule for the tour, understanding the demands, some of the travel, uh, the opposition, going through some of that information, some of that data, some of that preparation. So that's sort of setting the context yeah. for what you want to select about to or how you're going to play and, and who's yeah, going to play. Yeah, so then that, sort of, that was sort of very high level, setting the scene in terms of, you know, this is the tour, hotels, travel, training venues, etc. Then obviously some of the work on, you know, in terms of the test matches. And it all boils down to the test matches yes all the preparation games are important yes the midweek games are important absolutely but no one remembers anything other than the test match scores and you've always got to remember that well, just on that I mean yeah. perhaps this isn't so um, easy to understand for, for non-rugby aficionados but I think for those in in rugby there's lots of different philosophies around the relationship between the midway, midweek game and the, and the test match almost I believe one coach had two teams basically one for the midweek and one mm. for the, uh, we won't name names no. because I don't think that was a tour that went so well uh, what's the kind of um, expectation because presumably of, of 37 to 41 people who are coming together as a playing team not all of them are going to get much game time some no. might just be sitting there as to, particularly towards the end of the tour yeah um, you know everyone will have an opportunity in the first couple of weeks of tour that first four to six matches everyone will be given you know hopefully Injury permitting, ample opportunity to uh, to perform and show what they can do. But after you know the the first test is usually sort of match seven. So once you once you're into the first test, and that test team selected, you then know whether you're likely to then get in the test team again, yeah. um, or you're more in the midweek sort of group. And that's not that isn't easy to manage. Um, 
you know, particularly for a group of players who are very used to getting selected every week. Yeah, they're the best in um, You know, they've probably never been dropped for their club size, they've never been dropped um, for their international side. You know, and in, in Australia for that, you know, the third test in 2013, that was the first time Brian O'Driscoll had ever been dropped for any match ever in his life. Well, that's... Uh, like, he's never been exposed to that before. Well, that was going to be... That's quite an interesting element. So, in the selection process, in, in relation to, say, mm-hmm. Brian O'Driscoll, are you thinking about the characters involved? Like, how much does the character of the individual play into the thinking around selection? Is it purely tactical game plan, who can execute it? Or is it, those three have a good pairing, I know they're a good bunch of people who are going to bring up the group... Oh, there's, yeah, there are, there's many factors that you try to capture to, to inform the decision. Yes, there's the objective performance data um, that we hopefully collect in a manner that is reflective of the game model, and it's absolutely critical. I believe that the, the data that you're collecting reflects the, the tactical model and, and plays that back to the coaching group so they can understand who's contributing positively to it and who isn't, because that is, you know, that's the performance that they want to get out of the players at the weekend. There's no point just having generic data that doesn't really inform you of anything and you know so much of the data that you see within media outlets uh, newspapers Sky sports things like that is just generic um, bland data like number of passes number of kicks you know the players who also contribute to the organization of the team the players who contribute to the essentially almost like the coaching of the team on mm. the pitch because with the best one in the world no coaching team, no performance team can be out there playing for them. You, you know, it's up to those players to be able to self-manage, um, self-manage and and manage the other players in the team. And the players that are able to do that, you know, that is a huge skill set and a huge factor in, in terms of whether they're selected or not. It's not just, you know, we try to be as objective as possible, but there is always an element of subjectivity with selection. And I don't think and I don't think we should shy away from that. You you want to do people, right? Yeah, exactly. So you, you need to have that balance of good, objective data that you've collected in a valid and consistent manner, and all the stuff that we preach uh, over a long period of time, so you can compare performance and monitor trends and track form and all that good stuff that we want to do. But there's also you know the intangibles that they bring bring in also coaching intuition, the gut feel, their their ability to. Um, innately understand what a performance or a player or a team needs at any given time because they've watched these patterns of play play out so many times over and over again they innately know without even maybe being able to articulate why but they know what that and we never want to lose that because that's built on you know 30 30 years of experience you normally in a selection meeting got your data you've got the coach's opinion I presume there's that's a subjective set of conversations that's going on as to how much weight we're going to put behind the objective mm. data, how much mm. we're going to put behind the personality and yeah. the leadership. But do you typically find there is like, right, we need the leadership core is what we're going to select first and then we build the player the player group out from that? Or is it, yeah, is it mixed in different environments? Uh, yeah, it's different. different. You, you usually find um, 90% of your time in selection meetings uh, in coaches' meetings is taken up by the fringe players which again always feels insane because they're they're the players that are on the sort of the periphery of the squad or the periphery of the team or it's a it's a very tight call and then your core players like you say you you know your your ones that are the leaders within each of the units the ones that have got many caps and many experience that have bought into the philosophy bought into the game plan are you know are the guys that implement it but you, you don't actually spend that much time discussing them because they're usually the ones delivering week in, week out. Um, and then the majority of the time is taken up with the fringe players, which again just seems a bit 
ask about face that in terms of your best players you don't actually speak about that much um, so like one thing that we used to do with England uh, we'd have a, a call on a, on a Monday uh, the analysts and the coaches to go through the players at the weekend and just discuss where the squad selection was currently whether the weekend affected anyone's thinking any injuries any red flags anything that people picked up on uh, I remember we were on one call and the way we used to structure it was we wouldn't send the data to the coaches until after this call because we didn't want it didn't want to taint yeah, yeah to taint everybody exactly um, so we were talking through players and I remember um, uh, one of the coaches talking about uh, Chris Robshaw and saying oh you know uh, Robbo had a quiet game in the weekend ball in hand hardly touched it hardly got involved uh, you know not many clear outs you know really sort of disappointing and then you know we had a look at the data and it was actually mate you know Quinn's only had the ball for 25% of that game so he actually had no opportunities to carry, he had no opportunities to influence the game and attack. However, defensively he made 32 tackles, he got two turnovers um, and had you know, 10 positive involvements at breakdowns. Um, they were like, oh right, okay. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I was probably a little bit harsh on him. Well, that's a really interesting point in that you've been in doing this for a while now mm. um, and presumably when you started and data was perhaps, an objective data was perhaps less at the forefront of decision making mm. I know from our conversations in the past you probably had coaches who've been in their job and scouts who've been in their jobs for decades mm. and the idea of having you know some pimply kid which you must have been once right I mean uh, that cleared up I mean that cleared up years ago <laughs> that was just a cream I can't believe yeah. you brought that I up don't, I don't know why I made that I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but the idea of somebody you know, fresh out of uni with an approach around data would have been a challenge presumably yeah. but I'm imagining now it's pretty ingrained in most sporting institutes it is it is in most um, there's still there are still some environments that push back at times um, and, and and like I said you never want to lose coaching intuition or experience you know people have been in sports for a long time and have that really you know deep rooted knowledge uh, of the sport you never want to lose that there are some that still bristle, like say, at the fact of you know data spoiling it or data taking you know the passion out of it or the intuition out of it or or whatever. And like I said, we're, we're never trying to do that. We're never trying to replace some of that subjective feel, and the feel is hugely important. Um, you know, and 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 players that understand the feel of a game, and again, coaches that understand the feel of a game or what's needed at that moment in time is absolutely invaluable and very very hard to measure. And then links into decision making and players make good decisions versus ones that don't always make the right decision um, so it's get very sort of complex and very very difficult to capture objectively one of the bits that we haven't touched much on is the player involvement and the mm. player acceptance of data have you had scenarios whether it be in cycling um, whereby you're introducing data into the picture and I suppose you've, you've got video so we can think of that as quite objective mm. where you you know you have to convince the player that this has been an objective process and yeah. here's the support material. Remember in the build-up to the Beijing Olympics, we had six elite uh, team pursuit riders, but we could only take five. So the you know the, the meeting uh, or the individual rider meetings that took place to tell them whether they were in or out of the squad and w took place in one office. And then myself and the, the analysis team were sat in the other office with two projectors set up, one with a load of footage of, of all of the holding camp and training camps that we just had and all of the data on every rider for every rep in every position within the team. So then if any of the riders challenged the, 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 the news that they were given around Olympic selection, 
they were then brought into, into our office to go through the data, to show the evidence, to, to give them the rationale and the reasoning behind it. Um, you know, and it gave the coaches the opportunity to say, oh, mate, no one wants you in the team more than me. But these analysts, <laughs> yeah, these analysts, these bad guys, <laughs> they're just bad guys. They've had it out for, out for you with, from the with start. The bloody facts. <laughs> I hate facts. <laughs> They've had it out for you from the start. So, in, in that regard, and you know, they were very, they were very much a you know very data supported program. And like I say, you know, cycling is very measurable, so it does lend itself to to that sort of extreme, and that is quite an extreme sort of example. So, so flipping that into a team sport like rugby, which I know we've talked a bit about, but I guess it's a, it's a complex even for both of us that have been in and around mm. this area for a while, it's a complex set of yeah. rules that are constantly changing and being applied. With that ambiguity that, that of, of interpretation, if you like, of any given game, mm. do you get a lot of challenge from players where they're saying, mate, you've got this completely wrong, I did this or that, or you've interpreted this wrong, or I dominated in that situation? Yeah, there is, yeah, there's a huge amount of... Um, pushback's probably a bit much, but sort of challenge in terms of... It's, it's also interesting to chat to them straight after a game to see how they felt certain elements of the game went in sort of like a hot debrief as it were oh I thought I did this well I didn't do this well oh this was crap whatever but that, to then go back through it the next day with them looking at the video looking at the data their perspective changes yeah. massively in, in between those two sort of periods of time and it's quite interesting like in those hot debriefs even the most confident of players at times have, have re really become very insecure because they've had no sort of confirmation of whether they played well or not, because yeah. it's so subjective. Yeah. You know, sometimes you know they know when they've played really well. You know, it's got a low try, a low line breaks, whatever. Really obvious stuff. But particularly for sort of forwards who you know perhaps don't have those highlight real moments, and theirs is more about the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty, um, and about repeated efforts, repeated quality of actions, repeated accuracy, repeated technique and scrums that isn't always picked up on. Um, it's interesting to see sometimes they're even they're unsure and certainly when it comes to referee interpretation around set piece and breakdown they're they're you know they're, they're usually on the side of oh the ref was killing me today yeah, yeah. um is, is the usual initial response until you then go through it the next day with the video and audio and all of those sorts of things to support it and there's at that point once they've also you know spoken to external people their agent newspapers the media they then build up a narrative around their mm. performance mm. That, that, that they now totally change from where they were post-match to this this is this is my narrative this is how I'm explaining my performance this is how I'm justifying certain things yeah. or this is how I'm showcasing yeah. certain things and it's quite interesting it's almost um, they, they move into like a sales mode um, and you know this is particularly I'm talking about an international context where you know you could get dropped the following week yeah. um, if you've got another another match sort of coming in, so it's 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 quite an interesting sort of space that they move into, and they will you know certain players will push back on, on certain things, um, and will challenge you, and you know rightly so. Um, Did you have specific personalities? We thought oh, I've got to deliver this piece of bad news to this person, and oh, this is going to be <coughs> oh, painful. Same with you know the human beings. You know there was always there was always you know a, a few people who would have an excuse for everything. Um, you know, in, in this situation, you should have been running this line, or you should, you know, you should have been there to support him for that. Or rather than standing back, you should have got into the break. And gone, oh well, but you know what? What I heard was somebody else shouting, or I saw somebody over there, so I thought I'd cover that. Um, and they've always got an excuse for it. Um, you know, the, the sort of the apologists. 
Um, Did you ever get pushback on the sort of, well, mate, you're not playing the game, you're not on the pitch. It's all very well having the videos and the day. Did you ever get that sort of angle from them? Um, a little bit, but not, no, not too bad. They were, you know, they're, they're pretty good with that, really. I think, you know, there was, there was, you know, a healthy level of respect, hopefully, just as, you know, professionals and things like that. I'm sure behind closed doors, you know, some of those conversations are said. Um, I never personally had that sort of challenge thrown at me too much. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I mean, I, I enjoyed watching you in, I think it was in 2016, the Australian tour where England mm. won 3 0 against um, Australia uh, in three Put tests, it. and you had long hair. That, I mean, that, I just really am telling mm. these anecdotes because the, uh, of your hair. Yes. Yeah. With the Italian Italian sitting the up in the glass the pilo, box. Pilo face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably that's an experience that not a lot of people will get in their lifetimes. And I'm, I guess for some of the, the listeners, just to, you know, you've got the media cameras sort of zoned in on the coaching box. You've got mm. Eddie Jones marauding around doing what Eddie Jones does. What's it like in that room? Does it feel high pressure? Does it feel tense? What's the data? Because now data, of course, can be live. Yeah, yeah. Whereas probably when you started, it was less. Yeah, less so. Um, but yeah, you know, you get a lot of live data coming. The, the feel of the room, you know, massively varies depending on the coaching team and so if we both zoned in on that one what did it feel like then <laughs> that that was not a fun place to be that was not a relaxed place to be um you know myself and a couple of the assistant coaches would be up there a bit earlier um getting everything ready making sure everything was in place yeah we'd have the the live audio coming in from the referees we have the live data coming in from our guys collecting the data and, and third party we have multiple video angles we have it up on screen you know all the sort of technical setup but um, in terms of um, you know an atmosphere you know the coaches were very much on edge analysts very much on edge because um, was that the first tour for Eddie Jones yeah. or was it like a marker moment against his home nation yeah he was and it was, it was during that period of was it 18 wins in a row yeah um, someone that, correct that hugely, that's 17, 18 yeah, in a row sure yeah um, that hugely successful period when he first started um, and so yeah, every every test match is important every you know every international match because there's so few of them so um, and, oh, go on. and I was just going to say you know you only get 10 to 12 matches a year um, so people are like oh, what do you do the rest of the time um, so you only get sort of 10 <laughs> or 12 performances so everyone is, is hugely important and everyone has got its own, like you, you just said, its own context and its own story around it. So, you know, Australia's 2016, story around Eddie Jones returning home, England head coach, how could he go and coach England? Used to coach Australia, coming over, England haven't won a tour over there for 20, 30 years. You know, this whole narrative, and that, that shapes the performance in each of the tests and in each of the grounds that you play in, it's different. And what what you tend to lose as an analyst, because because we want big data, whatever that means, you don't get big data in elite sport because you're dealing with the outliers, you're dealing with the, you know, the, the thinnest end of the wedge. And so you don't have big data because you have 10 performances a year, you know, Christ. Um, so what we want to do as analysts is then cram as many matches together as we can to build up our data set, to give us some confidence in terms of what we're playing back. We want to do max, mins, averages, standard deviations, all that sort of shit. And we feel better for that because we're analysts. That's what we should be doing. But by doing that, you then lose the value of each individual performance, and contextually, they're all so different. And like the emotion, and again, this is all really stuff, you know, that as an analyst probably shouldn't influence me as much as it does. But 
the emotion of each match is so important. The, the emotional high ground of a rugby test match is, is massively critical. So I remember one, I can't remember what year it was, 2013 or 2014, we were playing a Grand Slam decider in Dublin, obviously against Ireland on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, I remember that. We were never going to win that match in a million years. Like however many times we played it, we weren't going to win because there was no way the Irish team were getting let out of the stadium on Paddy's Day, having just lost to England and handing over to the Grand Slam. And we got absolutely battered. And and you know obviously it's not the only thing but that emotional high ground mm. that day was so important to contextualize that performance and understand the performance that day and by just chucking that one match in with the rest of the data set you lose that and you lose some of the learning from that so i think as an analyst it's it, obviously it's important doing all of the statistical techniques and getting everything in a database and all that but it's also really important to look at each performance individually and take the learning and knowledge from that particular performance given the context around it and particularly within rugby that emotional high ground of is the coach under pressure are we returning back to where someone's coached previously are they on a five game winning streak are they going for the grand slam have they just lost the last four home games um, whatever that is you got battered by them the year before you owe them one someone said something in the press someone didn't all of that matters and you lose that with some of the analyses that we that we deliver and it's important I think to reflect on each performance in isolation at yeah. times. So there's a moment, I mean, I'll just sure ask you about this and we'll yeah. sort of start to wrap this up in a few minutes, but there, there was a moment, I believe it was Luther Burrell in, in the first half was pulled, substituted, yeah. 20, 20 odd minutes yeah, yeah. in maybe. And there were a couple of sort of defensive positioning um, mm-hmm. errors, I think, that not necessarily a lay person could perceive, but somebody involved in rugby. But what was that moment like? Why was that, not necessarily why was that call made, but what was the sequence of up to that decision? How did data play into that? Or was that just purely Eddie Jones didn't like what he saw? Something was um, niggling him and he No, it, it was a combination of data, video, and what they were seeing. So we conceded a number of line breaks, and we were also conceded not just line breaks, but um, we were very soft on the edges defensively and conceding a lot of yards. So, you know, obviously we had the, the data coming through in terms of um, meters made, line breaks, tackles, you know, all that, missed tackles, that sort of thing. So that, that data was coming through aligned with the video of, you know, every starter play at the minute. We're either conceding a line break or conceding huge territory because of our defensive setup and the way that we're setting up. And, and the, um, the misalignment in our defensive system, and and it was the you know it was, it was a s- systematic thing that was that was letting us down. And there wasn't that connection and coordination across the team, and you know so much of this is about not necessarily who's got the best game plan. It's which team buys into the game plan that they've got. You, you, you know, no one's got the ultimate game plan. There is no right or wrong way to do it. Um, you know, you've seen the All Blacks do it certain ways, Saracens do it certain ways, Exeter. Island now, you know, everyone plays differently, and there's no right or wrong way. It's just finding a way that everybody believes in and everybody buys into, and that's that's the battle. And what we were seeing was, um, for whatever reason, there was a lack of connection in our defensive system. And from the data, the video, and the coach's intuition, it was identified at that point that that it was believed that Luther was causing some of that disconnection, and we thought that making a change in that position would help with the connection and, and to realign our defence and get back to the system that had been working for the for the previous game. So in that moment, who's making the calls? Is it you saying, look, I'm seeing something here? I mean, it's, it's obvious the line breaks were happening, and it's sort of not obvious, but it was 
it was clear there was some yardage being lost. Yeah, so the, the defence coach, the defence coach was sat there. He wanted to see certain clips, watch the back, um, give me the data, give me the video. He would look at it. Said he had sort of said what's going on. Um, because Paul Gustard then looked into it in more detail. Um, I think Luther's making poor reads. Uh, and then Eddie, Eddie always had the final call on any any substitution. Because he's obviously a strong personality, and I guess some mm. coaches uh, might shy away from making a change for you know you're going to affect the confidence yeah, yeah. of the individual. It's quite, quite rare beyond an injury to make a change in the first half. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. But in that moment, it was a decisive call. Very, yeah, very. So that's the personality. So yeah, Eddie, Eddie asked for a diagnosis of what was going on. Why are we getting cut? Why are we conceding so much ground? The diagnosis from the defence coach with the data in the video was that that was the issue. That was fed back to Eddie, and then he made the call, and then that was it. That was the sort of the the OODA loop, as it were. So, sort of bringing this back round to selection to finish off. In your view, what is there a sort of model or framework of um, individual skills versus personality? Is there a sort of a template you typically work to or do you find that every team is different and every coaching approach is different in selection? Unfortunately the latter. Uh, if we had the former then you know we could just cut and paste. Yeah. Um, I've seen your work. That's, yeah. what, that's what you do. <laughs> control C, control or V. Yep. Ireland Rugby Football Club on here. Just, just cut that up in England. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I totally believe it's the latter, and every environment is completely different, even within the same sport. Um, you know, as I said, sort of previously, you know, how they operate philosophically, how they treat each other, uh, culturally, how they operate, how they want to use data, how they want to use video, how they support things. Um, you've got to make sure that what you're delivering is bespoke to their needs and reflects their vision, their mission, you know, and all of those sorts of things that you need to have in place for your strategic plan. Uh, and also, you know, your vision for your organisation. Thank you so much for spending some time. We've covered no, thank you. selection a little bit and then a lot of rambling Waffle. in different areas. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I absolutely love it. I could spend hours talking to you and indeed will be later in the pub. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much again. And um, No, thank you. See you. Beers are on time. you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Building Great Teams podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable. In this episode, we covered selection and analysis with Mike Hughes, uh, looking at themes of the use of data in decision-making, when to use data, and the role of data versus intuition. We hope some of the topics that we've covered are useful in your everyday life. And thank you again for listening.